For the last couple of months, we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth every day of our life. Thus, the theme for 2012, every day. Your, your life as a disciple, as an imitator of the life of Jesus, is not something that takes place on certain days of the week. It's something that happens and it's, a, it's who you are every day of the week. And it's not just in, in how you, uh, you behave and how you act and how you interact with other people. It's also about how you, you minister to other people. It's how, it's how you serve other people in the name of Jesus. It's how you hold out that cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus. But it's also, and this will be our, our last lesson, at least for a little while as we begin our insight uh, study of Matthew next week, but discipleship is also having a different perspective. It's having a different way of, of dealing with suffering. Something that we all experience. Some of us have gone through some tremendous, horrific suffering. Others of us are right in the middle of it right now. And it's not just because of a, of a death in, in the family. It can be because of the loss of health. It can be because of the loss of a job, because of a trial, some tribulation, some, some loss, some, something that is causing grief to well up inside of you. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we think about discipleship and suffering. And before we get into the text this morning, let's ask God to bless us. Father, thank You for the opportunity to have these words read to us and for them to, to, to become a part of the way that we see all of life. We understand, Father, that, that we live in a fallen world and that there are disasters and horrible, tragic, inexplicable things that take place in this life that affect us emotionally and, and even, Father, can afflict our, our, our thinking and our faith. We pray, Father, to heed the words of our, our brother Peter as he has written to us, through Your Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago, to suffer in the way that Christ did. To understand it and to see that there is in no place, in no instance of that suffering, that Your power not being manifest in us. And so give us eyes that see, Father, and ears that hear. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. And the whole church said, you know, all of us have heard the, uh, the phrase or the term, bite the bullet, right? We've all heard that. You know, for a lot of years, I, I, I thought it meant one thing until uh, a couple of years ago, realized and read someplace that it meant something else. For years, I thought bite the bullet had something to do with the Old West and the way that when an old cowboy was injured or wounded, they had to bite a bullet cartridge to endure the pain as his buddies tried to put him back together with baling wire and axle grease. I came a couple of years ago through my reading across a, a very different understanding of where that terminology came from. It actually came from the 1860s in the Civil War period. During that time, the Union supplied their soldiers with ammunition that came in little envelopes. And while you were in that main line of resistance, which is just sort of a wishful euphemism for being in the front line of the shooting, you would literally bite the bullet by taking that envelope and biting the top of it off, tearing it open, pouring the powder and shot into your rifle, packing it down so that you could keep on fighting. It was about being in the fight. Well, there's kind of a funny story that's associated with the bite the bullet terminology. There's a story told in 1863 when the North, the Union, uh, uh, had passed some conscription legislation. There was a letter that uh, arrived at the desk of this Ohio legislator 
that said, hey, basically, buddy, you need to show up for duty because you're, you're being drafted. Well, he didn't want to go to war, so he went home that night, knocked out his two front teeth. Went home and said, you know, honey, and she whapped him and knocked out those two front teeth, so literally he could not put that envelope in his mouth and, and bite the bullet and open it up, thus disqualifying himself from being able to serve in an active way like that. Imagine his chagrin when he showed up at the office next, the next day only to find out that it was a joke, the letter was a joke played on him by his colleagues. Not so funny, is it? <laughs> well, the, you know, that term bite the bullet in the, with the idea of it means that you're in the fight, that you're in the strife, really does kind of describe what it means to be a Christian from time to time. It, 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 it describes what it means to live a life in this fallen world. Christians are never immune from suffering, are they? Christians are never immune from suffering. There's no promise in the Bible that your life is going to be spared from pain. But one of the most important things that a disciple can know is that during that time of suffering, God's power comes upon you and it gives you what you need to help you not only survive that suffering, but to be able to use that suffering. To use that suffering in such a way that you are refined by it and that suffering can actually give you a greater heart. Now, when you read 1 Peter, you notice immediately that suffering is one of the main themes of this letter that he writes to the church. Sort of this general letter to, to the church. And he says in the first chapter, verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So this, this early church that Peter is writing to is not just suffering at one level or in one way. He's saying this, the, the church that he's writing to, he's saying, you know, you're rejoicing in these trials that, that are taking all kinds of different forms in your life because of your faith. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than what, church? Gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Those two verses sound like what he says in chapter 4, verse 12, when he writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something, what? Strange was happening to you. Now in this text that Barry has read for us, out of 1 Peter chapter 4, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about suffering. The first one is, it, as, as a believer, you need to have a new perspective as to what that suffering means and how to live in it. And the reason is probably about 60% of, of, of responding to suffering in such a way that it's profitable is to know what it really is. To know what it really is. And this is why Peter gives us a metaphor. You know, Peter doesn't say, you know what, you just need to suck it up. You need to run, rub a little dirt on it and, and, uh, and, and be a man and, and just deal with it. What he does is he gives us a metaphor. And the reason, as all of you, you lit people know, is that the reason we're ever given a metaphor is to make us think deeply. Not just to see it in our mind, but to think deeply about what it means. How it applies to us. To help us to get our mind around it at a, deeper, uh, at a deeper level. And so when we think about this metaphor, one of the things that Peter is trying to help us see is this. Suffering is a refining fire. It's not just fire. It's a refining fire. It's a painful trial. In fact, that painful trial in verse 12 is really fire. Literally, verse 12 reads this way. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that proves you. And even when you, you, you say that word out loud, it, it, you know, it sounds like what it means in English. The word porosis. It means to purify. 
Now, that metaphor doesn't help with the pain, does it? I mean, in fact, it probably describes very adequately what it means to be in the suffering or the ordeal. It is like fire. It does feel like suffering from burning at times because it's so intense. But it does help us to understand what that intense suffering can be for us. It is not just fire. It's a refiner's fire. Now, what is that all about, that metaphor? Well, you know, we go back to some of the images we've seen on television and history books. There's this smithy. And he's got the bellows going, he's got the fire, and he's passing the metal through it. And why does he pass that metal through it? To harden it, to melt it, to purify it. You know, it said that the ancient smithies, you know, somebody asked one time, you know, how do you know when it's, when it's pure enough, the silver? And it said that the ancient smithies would pass that silver through the fire as many times as was needed until the point that they could literally see their face in the silver. I don't know about you, but I think that that's a great metaphor for what it is that God is trying to do with our life through suffering. He's trying to purify us to the point that He can see His face in us. Now, in this first chapter, Peter says in verses 6 and 7 that this suffering is to prove our faith genuine. It's to really, you know, it's a test to really show what we're made of, what we really are on the inside. Now, think about how this happens within the metaphor. Physically, you dig up this piece of ore and it's part metal and it's part dross, which is, you know, that's a song that we sing in some of our hymns. It means the bad stuff in that rock and that ore has the metal and the dross and it's there together. Now, in normal temperature, whatever it might be outside between, you know, uh, 90 degrees or 100 degrees, whatever it might be, you find that piece of ore and guess what? You can't separate the two in, physical, in, 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 in a physically normal time, can you? It's just there together. But when you, you put it in the fire, and that heat creates the environment, that environment becomes so intense that they cannot stay together. The fire separates the metal from the dross, what is worthless. It separates those two things. And the final product depends on the nature of the rock, right? I mean, if it's 100% dross, just worthless trash dirt, if it's 100% dross, then because of that heat, it's going to be 100% destroyed. But if there's metal in it, church, then that fire brings out that metal and it's changed and it's refined. And this metaphor explains what happens to our faith in the ordeal, in the suffering, in the fiery trial that's proving us. We are spiritually changed. It doesn't matter if it's a trial or a trouble or a loss or pain or grief. In fact, when the fire comes in, the, in, in those kinds of instances in our life, what those things really begin to show is what we really trust in this life. And here's a truth I want you to write down on your outline. Listen, a disciple of Jesus cannot grow into a deep trust in God without ordeals. Now let me explain that by saying two, making two minor points about that. The first is human beings have divided hearts. Even Christians have divided hearts. If you're a disciple of Jesus, but you, you, know, you, you, you have this divided heart at times, but you don't really know it until the fire. Our hearts, my heart, your heart, it can be an amalgam of, of, of allegiances. And we don't know that, and, 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 and we don't know what our heart is divided with, and we don't see the inadequacies of, of all of those different allegiances until we're in that fire. 
So we become a Christian. We declare that we trust in God, that He is our God. He is the Lord of lords. We, we do all of that. What we don't realize, though, a lot of time, because we're still growing into the likeness of Jesus, is that when we make that declaration that we trust in God completely, that there are a whole lot of other things we trust that have come up right alongside God. And we're going along pretty well while it's the normal temperature outside. And those things are not separating out. But then the heat comes. And then all of a sudden we know that there are all of these other things that are right alongside our declaration of complete trust in God because they've become threatened. And we sense that they are threatened when we catch ourselves thinking like this. What good is it really to believe in God if I don't have this? Or what good is it for me to be a Christian and to do all of these things if I can't have this in my life? Or why, why should I be a devoted disciple of Jesus if this one thing that I've been asking for doesn't come? You see, that trial separates what is true from what is false. And you know you're in the fire when you, 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 you sense, you feel those things falling out of your hand. I mean, think about a career, or getting married, or being healthy, or having kids, or having a degree, or whatever it might be, and how it might affect your faith if you were to lose those things. People believe that they're okay in the faith, and, and that they're doing just fine in the normal times, when the temperature is just fine outside. It's when they hit the fork in the road. It's, it's when they have to decide what is most important, what is true and what is false. That's how you begin to understand that your faith is being proved genuine through that trial and that tribulation and that suffering. But not only does the, those, that suffering help you to understand what those idols are in your life and what those allegiances are in your life that, that need to be, be, be burned away in order for that declaration of trust in God to be 100% true, but number two, humans need help to see the inadequacy of the dross. I mean, we really need help from time to time to understand the inadequacy of those things that don't really matter all that much in, in the scheme of things. In the refiner's fire, the gold can take it. In the heat, the gold can take it. But the dross can't. Think for a moment, go back to the Old Testament up here on the screen, Jeremiah chapter 2. And think about what Jeremiah is saying to Israel, who has this understanding of Yahweh as, you know, they're a monotheistic nation. They understand that God is the only God. But notice what happens to them when they find themselves in, in a time of crisis. And in response to the way that they have responded, Jeremiah says, They say to wood, you're my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you have made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble, for you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. This was written at a time when Israel was in some deep trouble. And the trouble was not necessarily those outside forces, those, those foreign armies, even though they were bad enough. The problem was is that Israel was troubled with idols. They were declaring allegiance to God, but at the same time there were these other allegiances that were, that were striding up next to their hearts and walking along with them. 
And Israel would take a rock and say, you made me. And they would look at a stick and call it creator. Now how was Israel ever to know that all of these things that they were trusting in would ever get them through the ordeals? How was anyone to know whether or not the false gods were going to get them through life? Now listen, church, it wasn't going to be while they were on vacation. It wasn't going to be in the middle of some kind of good time when they were out on a cruise in the Caribbean someplace. That was not going to be the time when those false gods and those false, false uh, truths and those idols were going to make themselves known. It was right in the middle of the trial. Now for us Western modern people, you know, it might be something like God and intellectual respect. Or it might be God and comfort, or God and pleasure, or God and security, God and family, God and husband, God and wife. It might be any of these things. But in the ordeal, all of those things that we have made the functional foundation of our trust, our functional trust is in them, will all be burned up. They will not stand up to the suffering. I think just for a moment how... Think about the change that has happened in the scientific community over the last couple of decades. How is a scientific theory justified? In the old days, we would say it's you know, by empirical observation. Not anymore. Although no one has seen a quark, they believe it exists. And we believe that black holes exist even though we've not been able to reproduce them. No one's seen an electron, but we think they exist. Today what happens is you posit a theory and then you see how it stands up to reality. And it's the same kind of thing spiritually speaking. Careers, marriages, family, and health are all good things. But they cannot be elevated to the place of ultimate things. And as ultimate things, they can never take the place of God. I mean, think about this for... I mean, how does a career really get you through a serious illness? How does moving up the corporate ladder help you with a serious illness? You know, I wish I, I, I had a, a nickel, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's, it's a positive thing. But I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody went through um, a, a, you know, a bout of cancer or some kind of tragedy in their life, and they said, you know what? I've really put all of my eggs over here. I've been dedicating myself to work all of these times. You know what? This, this cancer or this, this, this loss or this trial or this, this terrible thing that's taken place has helped me to see what life is really all about. And now I'm going to be putting my time and effort in the most important things. Like why do human beings get to the point of, of, of thinking that life is meaningless? Is it, because, is it not because that they have taken their functional trust and have put it in something other than God and it's died? There's only one who never leaves you. There's only one who never forsakes you. Everything else gets burned up. When everything is going well, it's really hard to see how inadequate the false gods really are. You know, uh, several years ago, we kind of went through a year of church history, and I, I'll never forget the, the, the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Uh, both of them were ministers in England. You'll remember that in the 1500s, uh, you know, after the time of the, uh, the Reformation having begun, about 1555 or so, you know, Henry VIII has died, his son Edward becomes king, and then after Edward, Mary comes to the throne. 
And Mary wants to put a stop to all of the things that are happening as a reformation in England. And so here is, here is Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley who are going to be burned at the stake because they refuse to give up on how the grace of God and how the gospel should really be preached biblically. And so as they're being uh, 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 tied to the pole and, and the, the fires are being lit to the wood that's been soaked with tar and all kinds of, of uh, uh, gasoline-type products and the fires are beginning to leap up, Latimer says to Ridley, he says, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. For today, a, a candle will be lit that by God's grace shall never go out. Suffering. How can a false god help you through that kind of an ordeal? Only God does. When I was in the ninth grade, I, I worked for a guy in a neighborhood who had the most beautiful roses that I'd ever seen. One day, I remember watching him prune the roses into my novice eye, to my untrained eye. You know what I thought? He had, the, he had this, this arbor. It was just covered in these roses. Next thing you know, I'm watching him cut all of that down. And to my novice eyes, you know what I thought he was doing? I thought he was killing the plant. I'm thinking to myself, well, this would be pretty good because i got a job for the next couple of months trying to rebuild this thing. Not realizing what he was doing with the pruning. What I did not understand that he was, he was cutting away everything that was not productive. But not only do you, you need that new perspective, but you need a new response to suffering. And the first one is this, don't, church, please, don't be surprised. Why is it that some people are bitter because of an ordeal and others are stronger? Why is it that some are cynical and others are, 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 are better and stronger because of the ordeal? It's because one was surprised and the other one wasn't. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised. It's a command. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Now, Charles Spurgeon in a sermon once said that an ounce of sin will do more harm to you and to your soul than 10,000 pounds of trouble. Peter says, grief will not kill you, but surprise can. Self-pity and, and, and bitterness and cynicism and becoming wooden sort of and, and kind of jaded in the way that we, we respond to other people and, and, and things in our environment, all of that is the result of being surprised. I was surprised this wasn't supposed to happen. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in the dust. He is in the dust. Yet, He knows how it works. And that's why He prays, not my will, but your will be done. Which leads to the second thing, and that is commit. In verse 19 of 1 Peter 4, he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should what? Say it, church. Commit. According to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. In suffering you obey God. In suffering you commit. Why? Because in trouble it's easy to stop. When, you know, when trouble comes, you know what? You, the, the route we normally take is to find these escape sins. We find these escape sins in order to wriggle out of the pain. We stop going to church. We stop meeting with people of like faith. 
We stop reading the Bible. We stop praying. We stop thinking about God and we begin thinking about the trouble. You escape into sins that begin to give you a bit of relief for a short period of time. But it doesn't work. And that's why you pray regardless of what happens. It's not my will, but your will be done. And in Christianity you have something that no other religion has. You have a God who says, follow my example. You have a God who says, I know what it's like to physically suffer. In Christianity, you have a God who says, I I know what it's like to suffer socially, to, to be ostracized. And in Christianity, you have a God who knows what it's like to, be, to, to suffer spiritually. All of these are arenas of Christ's suffering. And when you get that into your heart, and you think deeply about these things, and you understand that there is this model to follow, but it's more than just a model. We have a God who's gone through it to the other side, and He understands completely, and He beckons us to follow. If you can't trust that God, who can you really trust? And that's why at the very end of 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, cast all your anxiety, where? On Him. Because He cares for you. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe some of you have been suffering in your mind, in your heart, in your soul over things that are taking place in your life right now, one of the places that you find that encouragement and you find people to hold up your arms in order to continue to fight the good fight, in order to be faithful, in order to be committed to God and to understand that what is happening to you, if you use it, can profit you as you become refined in your faith and your faith is proved genuine and that you have this great heart and you have a you, you have a faith that is worth more than gold. Or if to this morning you've decided in your heart of hearts that you know the way that you've been living your life is just really leading nowhere and that this is not a time to, in, in, in your life to, to continue down that path. It's a, it's a day in which you know that there are, there are options, there are alternatives for you, that you don't have to continue driving your life into the ground, into the wall, but that today is a day that has a possibility that might change you and sweep through your life in such a way that you are transformed from here throughout all of the back end of eternity. And it's because you decided that you were going to trust God and not all of these other allegiances and idols and and other philosophies around, but you're going to trust God Himself. You're going to undo what Adam and Eve did in the garden that led to your fallenness into your falling into sin by not trusting God. Today you're going to trust God to save you in Jesus by being baptized, your sins being washed away, confessing Jesus to be your Lord, repenting of your sins, and beginning for the rest of your life to live that life in which you're never alone, you're never forsaken, you're never left out in the cold, you're never left anywhere that God is not with you, strengthening you and walking through that ordeal with you. And if that describes you this morning, we want you to come and talk to our shepherds who are going to be right down here on the front. And we'd like for you to do it now as we stand and sing together. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my...